This is going to be one of those moments when you need to respond, okay? So just warning you. You were kind of bad at that last week. How many of you believe that the name of the Lord our God is to be praised? Good job. Much, much better this time. We will be having communion after I'm done with the message. So Scripture warns us never to to partake of the bread and the cup without remembering the body and blood of Christ. And I'd encourage you to keep that spirit of praise that we've just had as I speak and just to prepare your hearts and minds for the Lord's Supper. If my family looks larger today, these are family, but there are friends and their family and some of their children, not even all of them. So you feel free to welcome them afterwards. They're from our church in Illinois. It's Sean and Lindsay McDaniel and their children. So we're glad to have them with us at our house. Being a disciple of Christ means that you have given him the highest place in your life. It generally doesn't take long to discover what it is that a person is completely sold out to. There are a few exceptions, and and some of those might be when uh, someone is still really young and they maybe haven't decided what it is that their life is all about. They're still discovering that. Or maybe somebody who's lived life longer and run into great hardship and, and as a result of discouragement, there's almost a spirit of giving up and it's hard to tell what it is that that person is completely sold out to. Otherwise, we can look at individuals and we can see in that person's life, we can see their relationships and we can see who it is that they spend their time with. Are, are they only uh, people who are completely of like mind? Are are they people who are of same interests, same beliefs, same political ideologies? The list goes on. Passions. Passionate about certain things. And and, and when you begin to talk to them about a certain subject, you'll see that their eyes kind of light up. They might even lean forward in their seat and they begin to talk with greater enthusiasm. And you can tell that there's this sort of sold out mentality toward whatever subject you're talking about. When you look at somebody's time use, when you look at their uh, daily schedule, both maybe work-related or uh, spare time related, you can get some idea of what that person is sold out to, what they're passionate about, especially the use of spare time. Calendars and even vacation will tell you a lot about what they're sold out to. Daily habits, daily patterns can speak to that. Our spending can speak to what we are sold out to, what we use our finances for, what we give them to. Today I'm going to be taking you into Luke chapter 14, and I encourage you to turn there and be ready. Luke 14, verse 25, and we'll be there in a few minutes. It's a very weighty chunk of teaching by Jesus. To set the stage, likely uh, the previous scene that Luke described helps us understand a little bit better uh, where Jesus was going here. We're told that in the beginning of chapter 14 that he's in the home of a Pharisee on a Sabbath day. 
And there in that home was a man in need of healing. Jesus was wise enough to know that this would be something that the Pharisees would judge him about. So he turns and asks them the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They don't know how to answer him, so he heals. And then he describes occasions when Sabbath laws would be ignored or avoided. Emergency type situations, if you will. The Pharisees were left speechless, unable to defend their legalistic ideals. He then tells them a parable in response to the way that those present chose their seating, because that was a big deal in that culture. And and he speaks about that, and then he says these words we find in verse 11 of chapter 14. He says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. If you were here last week, that might draw your minds back to what we studied last week. He then tells the man who invited him something about invitations. He said, when you invite people, don't invite those close to you or those who could return the favor. Instead, invite the poor, the lowly, the the blind, or the crippled. And he says, then you'll be blessed. He says, they can't repay you. But then he says something amazing, and I want you to hear it. He says, you will be repaid at the resurrection. Now, that's a loaded phrase. Doing something now that would cause us to be repaid at the resurrection. Again, the idea of sacrifice now, reward later. Then Jesus speaks of a great banquet in which many invited guests choose not to come. They have excuses as to why they're not going to come. A purchased a field or, or bought some oxen and need to examine them. I don't know what's involved in that. doesn't sound pleasant. But anyway, uh, and, and then the excuse, I, I just got married. Please excuse me for not coming. And the master of the banquet says, then go and invite others. And then he says something very, very powerful. And we need to think about why Jesus was trying to say this. He says, none of those invited shall taste of the banquet. He's speaking there of a cost for their decision, a cost for their making excuses not to come. Should draw our attention. This now leads us to our primary text of the morning. Look with me at chapter 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them, turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was unable to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war 
will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this occasion where we can gather together Sing praises to your name, for you are worthy. Turn our hearts and turn our focus toward you. Remember our Savior and and give toward your ministry. Father, we're thankful for the freedom to do this. And Father, may we always value it. Lord, as we open the word together today, we ask that you would just be our guide, that your spirit would move in our hearts and in our lives would speak through me. We pray for East Campus today as they open the word there and Pastor Wade as he leads. And Father, we desire that you would work in in such a way that you would help us to see what we need to see and hear what we need to hear and respond appropriately. We give this time to you now in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. So the cost of following Jesus is a familiar theme in Luke's gospel. Here in chapter 14, we see that uh, Jesus, uh, first he identifies the cost of rejecting the invitation. Remember, I just read that. It's none of those invited shall taste of the banquet. So there's uh, there's a cost there. Now we see the cost being highlighted. The second one, the, the true cost of discipleship. The cost of following Jesus. Notice that verse 25 begins with, Now great crowds accompanied Jesus. And I ask you this morning, aren't great crowds the evidence of great ministry? Is that not one of the primary metrics that we use to measure and evaluate ministry? I mean, if great crowds are coming, then we're succeeding, right? Certainly, of anyone ever to do ministry, Jesus succeeded in ministry. Yet strangely, in this perceived high point in his ministry, with great crowds, he raises the bar and arguably thins the herd. Chasing some away. No doubt Jesus knew that many who were following him We're doing it with the desire to maybe observe miraculous things. Dare I say, to be entertained. They want to be there when the blind recover their sight. They they want to see that happen. They want to see that leper suddenly have fresh, clean skin. The dead come to life? Come on, I want to see that happen. hair in the lungs again? Who wouldn't have wanted to have a closer look, right? 
Who wouldn't have wanted to be there to observe when he put the arrogant religious leaders in their place? Maybe some just wanted a free lunch of fish and bread or a desire to get a significant place in his kingdom. Yet once again, Jesus surprises his listeners here. Instead of encouraging the crowds who are following him, he presents the reality of just what discipleship requires, what it costs. And he uses strong language to do so. Look at verse 26 again. And if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. You and I are stunned and, and if not horrified by this statement from Jesus. Stunned be by the use of the word hate. How could this be the command or appeal of Jesus in order to be his follower? Is this not in direct contradiction to, say, the, first, uh, the fifth commandment? I mean, how can hating your parents be in any way honoring to them? In Mark chapter 7, verses 8 through 10, we read Jesus addressing the Pharisees. He says, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So how could this mix? Is Jesus saying something that would flow in contradiction to the words that the Holy Spirit led Paul to write in Ephesians? Ephesians 5, verses 24 and 25. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Is Jesus in contradiction? Didn't Jesus call us to love our enemies? Luke 6, verse 27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. How does that make sense? Hate our father and mother, brothers and sisters, and yet we're to love our enemies? What about Jesus' answer to what the greatest commandment is? He says, love God with every fiber of your being, right? Your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. How, how does that mix? How do we work through that? What about John 13, 34? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. So how are we going to process this? Could, could Jesus really be asking us to love one another, love our enemies and our neighbors, and loathe our loved ones? Jesus often spoke the truth in startling and stunning ways, and this was no exception. But this is even more stunning to us because we understand hate 
to mean to feel intense hostility towards or passionate dislike for someone. How do we work this through, from a, even from a literary sense? Back in Genesis, we read of Esau and Jacob. If you remember, Jacob had prepared some stew, and Esau comes in from the field, and he smells that stew, and he wants it so bad. He wants to satisfy his hunger. And what did sly Jacob say? Sell me your birthright. Esau agrees. He trades his birthright for stew. And I want to suggest to you that that was not an emotionally driven thing that he did except for his desire for the stew. Because it says, we read there, thus Esau despised his birthright. That's not an emotionally driven loathing of his birthright. It's, I want stew. Because we know later he wants it back, right? It was a foolish misalignment of his priorities. Remember also that Jacob had two wives, Rachel and Leah. One he loved, the other he hated. Yet Leah, his hated wife, has seven children by him. How do we work that out? Jesus is powerfully communicating that all other loves must come second to their love for the Lord. We would do well to hear hate as love less than, or that our love for the Lord is to be so strong that any other love just pales in comparison to love less. I think the words written in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, help bring clarity. Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Helps us understand that this is about prioritizing our love for Christ. Look at verse 27. And whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus lays here a second cost of discipleship that is equally stunning. From our post-cross perspective, from our vantage point in history, we can see how deep the meaning of this is. It's incredible. He's telling people who does not bear, ever bear their own cross cannot be his disciples, and yet he was going to bear his cross, wasn't he? And that's what we remember when we share in communion together. He would literally carry his cross. He would sacrifice himself, having left his father's side. But see, from their cultural perspective, they would have looked at it from understanding this brutal form of execution by the Romans. They knew that the cross was humiliation, being stripped down, being mocked, being public, publicly humiliated, suffering and dying. But notice that Jesus says more than just take up your cross. He says, and come after me. 
take up your cross and come after me. Now, in the days prior to GPS, I know you look at me and you know that there's no way I'm old enough to know anything about those days, right? But I've heard about this. I've heard rumors that prior to GPS, there were these things called maps, and you would unfold them. And if you needed to find your way from one place to another, you would work your way through this map. And you would look at these tiny little lines all over the place. Kids, you should look up one one time. They're pretty cool. And um, again, I've just heard about them. But as you make these little things, you, you notice that you need to turn here and turn there, and you figure out how many miles you've got to go in each place and, and hoping to not miss any turns. Figuring out the distance for each segment, for each road. Now, an easier way, in theory at least, was to follow someone. And hopefully they knew the way. And if you followed that person, you could just relax and just drive your car behind them or ride your bike behind them because they knew the way. And occasionally, I've heard about this, that the the lead car would then all of a sudden like wave to you like this and do a U-turn. And you're like, okay, wait a minute, they don't know where they're going, right? So that's why it's only theoretically better. The downside of following someone is you surrender all control. They're going this way, they're going that way, and you're going, where are we going? And you hope that it's the right way. Understand that when Jesus said, come after me, it is a call to surrender. Surrendering our control of our own lives. This means that he now indicates our agenda, and our direction for life. I will not soon forget sifting through my emails this past November. As I was going through them and responding to what I needed to respond and looking at things, I saw a familiar one that I would receive occasionally from a, a an agency called N.L. Moore. And from time to time, I would get an email from them. They're a lead pastor search firm. And I would always at least read what they were presenting to me, see about the church and the position they're trying to fill with the mindset of the Lord is to lead my life. It's not my decision what happens. I began to read this email, read about a church somewhere in Iowa called Parkview or Water Vision, something like that. Uh, And I remember at one point having read through that email, just leaning back in my chair and kind of doing this and having a strong sense that the Lord was saying, you need to respond. And I remember thinking about the cost of that. I remember thinking about the potential ramifications of it. And yet, remembering that if God desires it, it must happen. And I'm standing before you today as a result. For me to have stayed would have been detrimental to my own walk with Christ, to my family, and to my church there to have not been obedient. If God desires it, it must happen. Surrendering to his lead. Because he says, come after me.
Jesus continues this teaching with two quick little parables here. Look at verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, he is not able to finish. All who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Jesus uses these two examples to say to these crowds, these people, listen, you must really think this through if you're going to be my disciples. You need to understand what's involved in this. Just like if you were going to take on a construction project, you would, you'd ask the question, what is this going to cost? By the time we go through all the permits and by the time we buy all this and by the time we have it drawn up, everything, all that's involved, what is it going to cost? What interest might I have to pay? How much time and effort will it take? Can this be accomplished? If you take the bypass around Rockford, Illinois, you will likely notice a very large structure to the south of the bypass. There's a church there that had long-time plans of building a huge worship center. I was told that a guest speaker came to this Pentecostal church, a prophet, if you will, came and gave them a dynamic message, and he told them, build it, God will provide. Five years ago, they began, and they started putting up these cement structures to outline where this huge auditorium will be. Four and a half years ago, it came to a screeching halt. Today, if you drive by, you will still see the orange construction fence around that site and these poured walls still propped up. The money was not there to proceed. You and I know and we understand the value of considering the cost. But Jesus is now going to take it a step further. Look at verse 33. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciples. He just raised the bar a little higher, didn't he? Renunciation is the act of abandoning or, abandoning or rejecting something, especially if that's something that the renunciant has previously enjoyed or endorsed. Can you... Or would you be willing to declare your abandonment, your rejection of something that you really enjoy or really value? Do you see the Lord as the ultimate owner of that which you, you possess? Remember the words of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 6? He said, where your treasure is, there your heart is will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
It speaks of our resources. And regular and generous giving is a mark of a true disciple, a mindset of this is from him and I'm glad to give back to him. And Jesus, understand here, is, is teaching this crowd that a disciple of his will grant him the highest place in his or her life. The highest place. No relationship, no plans, no priorities, no agendas, no possessions will take a higher place in your life than he takes. This is our Savior telling us what true discipleship is. He's saying nothing comes above him. He gets the highest place in our lives. Look at these two next verses. They're a little odd. Verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Seems like a strange statement here, doesn't it? Is Jesus saying something completely new here? Should we have separated these two teachings? It would seem that Jesus wants us to draw our minds to that which is of, li of little or value or without value, without impact. Jesus seems to be communicating that a disciple who is not holding the Lord in the highest place is without value or use to the kingdom of heaven. I really appreciate the writing of R. Kent Hughes on this subject. He writes, salt, sodium chloride, is a stable compound. Technically, it cannot lose its saltiness, but it can be diluted when mixed with impurities, thus losing its saltiness. The image of salt coming here on the heels of three conditions of discipleship, hating one's life and family, taking up the cross and giving everything, expresses the willingness of the disciple to give his life totally to Jesus Christ. Even as salt can lose its saltiness, so commitment to Christ can deteriorate. If the saltiness is lost, the disciple is useless and fit for nothing but to be tossed out. He does not lose his salvation, but he bears no fruit for the Savior. But the disciple who is dynamically committed to Jesus in respect to family, the cross, and money is a powerful agent of the kingdom. His life is delivered, I love this, his life is delivered from insipid blandness. His presence is always felt. He seasons the life of his family, friends, church, and society. His life brims with vitality. Saline saints bring zest and gusto to life. Like salt, they bring out the best of the flavor of living. The cost of discipleship produces saltiness. Are we willing to pay the price? If you're under my teaching for any length of time, you will hear me saying phrases of this nature. One of the most frustrated individuals you will find is one who claims Jesus yet will not live a surrendered life. Why? Because they have an identity crisis. 
considering yourself to be in service of Christ while actually being enslaved by people, priorities, goals, and stuff renders fruitlessness. I can't resist quoting the famous quote from Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Paul said in Philippians 3, I count everything I lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Let me ask you, is there anything about your faith today that will change tomorrow? Is there anything about your faith today that will change someone else's tomorrow? Is there any vitality to it? Let me close with this question. Are there people, priorities, or possessions in your life that you love more than the Lord? We're going to be partaking of communion together. If you didn't get one of these on the way in and you need one, if you want to slip your hand up in the air, one of our deacon team will try to get one to you. Just put your hand up until you get one. I said, right back over here. Today, as we partake of the bread and of the cup, these symbols of the body and blood of Christ, maybe we need to start by confessing the ways and the times in which we have put our love for people in our lives over our love for Christ. And maybe that needs to be dealt with this morning before we partake. Or maybe we need to confess the times that our plans, our goals, our agendas have been above his direction for our lives. Or maybe we need to confess the fact that our love for our stuff, for our possessions, for our wealth the things we value have risen above him. If there's things in your life that have become higher, have taken a greater priority than Christ, would you just take a moment to deal with that right now and take a moment to remember Christ? Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he gave thanks for the bread and the cups. Let's do that now. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your plan of redemption that you would send your Son to take on flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, and that he would, in humility, dwell with and minister to people that he would go to the cross and that his body would be nailed to it on our behalf. That he would take your wrath for our sin upon himself. That his blood would be poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus, thank you for your willingness to sacrifice on our behalf. We are eternally grateful. Forgive us for the times when we valued other people or our goals or our stuff more than you. We confess that now. 
And we praise the name of our Savior Jesus, who not only died for us, but defeated the grave, offering us eternal life through faith in Him. We praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. When he had given thanks, he took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. After the supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul writes, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.